Well, Father, it's always good for us to gather, and it's always so good for us to reach for our Bibles, and to open them, and to receive a word from you. And so, Lord, use your word, strengthen us, and encourage us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It was about a week and a half ago that I went down to the mailbox, and uh, do you know what it's like to pull some letters from the box, some mail from the box, and there is a personalized handwritten envelope? That's a good thing, isn't it? And you say, now who is that? And you look at the return address right away. And my heart lifted when I saw that it was from Michigan and it was from one of my father's old friends, Wally Dow. Now, Wally Dow was kind of like one of my boyhood heroes. He was a contractor. He was known for hard work and his physical strength. And he was a a real good hunter. My dad used to duck hunt and pheasant hunt with him. And he was just the kind of guy that uh, loved to tell stories. And so as an 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old boy, whenever I was around Wally Dow in Michigan, it was just so fun to hear him tell stories and and, uh, just to be around him. Wally's kind of known as a tough guy, and he knew the Lord and all, but um, he's now 80 years old. Just a couple months ago, celebrated his 80th birthday. He's had a heart attack, and um, uh, the last time I saw him was at my mom's funeral a couple years ago. So I was really pleased that a handwritten letter had come from Wally Dow. I opened it, and there was a little slip of paper in there that had a little hand-jotted note scribbled on it, and it said, Van and Mrs., Hope you're doing well. Here's something that I'm sending to all my friends. And I open it up, and it's a paper that he had written himself on a computer, and uh, it sounds a lot like him. He always talked kind of in short, snip sentences, and it was kind of a tough guy. And it's titled, Concerned About My Friends, underlined. Concerned About My Friends. He said... I lived in Decatur, that's a little town in southern Michigan. I lived in Decatur the first 28 years of my life, quite careless as some of you remember. Next sentence. I gave my life to Jesus Christ, and I want to share some verses with you. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air. We shall always be with him. Comfort one another with these words. And then the next sentence. Repent of your sin. Accept Jesus as your Savior for eternal life. 1 John 5.13 I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. A couple more small sentences. What's your purpose in life? Question mark. Time is running out. Wally Dow. And I thought when I read it, I thought, you know, when you're 80 years old, you don't care about cool anymore. 
You just know you've got a bunch of friends and you know that you've messed up sometimes in your life and you know that you believe the Bible's the word of God and you know it won't be long before you're going to be in the presence of the Lord. And he's spreading the word to everybody who knows. So let me ask you a question. What are you doing to reach your friends with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or are you too concerned about cool? You know what? There's some misspelled words. It's a little bit different. It sounds just like him. Time is short. Get saved. Christ is coming. Let the people know. Right? Well, maybe some of you have been wanting to know a little better how to reach your friends for Christ. And as you grab your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 with me again, we're really in a series on prayer. But this morning, I want you to know that the Apostle Paul's challenge has everything to do with reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might subtitle our message today that I've titled Presidents, Politicians, Police, and Prayer because Paul's emphasis is going to be on the importance of us praying for people who have authority over us. But do you know what, in the context of our passage, we're going to discover? We're going to see clearly that what Paul, a big emphasis of what Paul is writing to young Timothy, young Pastor Timothy, at Ephesus, as he tries to straighten out this church, is that one thing the believers there should be characterized about is praying for those who are in power over them, but be praying for their salvation. And so you could subtitle our message today, Evangelistic Praying. Did you pray this week? I hope so, and if you only did it for a day or two, that was our big challenge last week, to start praying, to start meeting with the Lord in a quiet place, to actually get on your knees. There's something about that. Not magical or spiritual, but something about our hearts and our minds when we get on our knees and bow our head before our Heavenly Father who is present with us and we have our list and we make petitions and and, uh, praises and intercessions and thanksgiving before the Lord and God's people are involved in the work of prayer. The Apostle Paul now is going to flesh out this challenge and he's going to tell them specifically who to pray for. And he's going to tell them the reason you're going to pray for them is so that they will come to know Christ. There's quite a challenge for us here this morning, so let's dig in and let's read our text, verses 1 through 7, and we're basically going to get through them today. And I hope that you'll benefit from the challenge that's on my heart and comes directly from the Apostle Paul's challenge to young Timothy. Here we go, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning with verse 1, put your eyes down on your Bible and follow along. I urge you then, first of all, that requests and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Verse 7, and for this purpose, I, the Apostle Paul, was appointed a herald and an an apostle. I am telling the truth. We're thankful for that. I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. 
Well, what I want us to see in this passage this morning is four motivations for praying for those in authority over us. I want you to keep in your mind, though, this sub-concept of evangelistic praying. Because maybe you're not quite ready to send a letter to your friends and just say, time is short, get saved, here's some verses. That's not a bad idea. Maybe you're working on some people, but one thing that all of us can do is we can get on our folded piece of paper in the back of our Bible a list of names of our circle of friends who need Christ and start praying for God to save their souls and do some evangelistic praying. Let's see what God's going to do in the course of the next year. Here's our motivations for praying from the Apostle Paul, our motivations for praying for those who are in authority over us. The first one is a practical motivation. Number one, a practical motivation. What do I mean by practical? Well, it has to do with what you might construe as almost a selfish motive. It affects us practically. It's a little bit the concept of your dad tells you, son, you got to mow the lawn, and it's a 98-degree day, and you got a push mower, and you got three acres. But he says, but I'm going to give you all the Mountain Dew and ice cream you want as soon as you're done. We can kind of work this thing out, you know? It's like, my motives might not be pure, but I really want the end result. Well, the Apostle Paul is always concerned about our motives, but it's the end result that I'm speaking of as a practical motivation for our praying. Notice what he says. He, he reminded us of the call to prayer and the priority of prayer in verse 1. We talked about that last week. The kinds of prayer, we reviewed them last week. Requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. And the circle of prayer that they be made for everyone. So yes, we are to be praying for everyone. But then he goes on specifically to say, now notice this. Praying for kings and all those in authority. So right at the top of our prayer list needs to be the king and everyone in authority. Wow. And we're good at griping about the king. We're good at griping about our leaders, aren't we? And I want you to think in terms of our president, our vice president, our legislative leaders, our Supreme Court, and anybody else who has authority over us. Governor Tomlin, mayors, chief of police, professors project leaders at work, pastors, people who have authority over us. Paul says, pray for them, and he particularly wants us to pray for the president because here's the practical reason to pray for him, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That's just a simple, practical reason to pray for the president. You see, implied in the text, implied in that sentence is that when we pray for him and God works through the president and God works through the governor and God works through the mayor and God works through the people who are over us, that there is a trickle-down effect of peace and calm and justice and an arena and an atmosphere where we then can grow in godliness and holiness. Listen, in your prayer life, do you thank the Lord for a quiet, calm community? When you go to bed at night, are you thankful that you're not burrowed up in some bomb shelter with rocks and sandbags piled around it, with explosions going on around you? But you're getting into a, a beautifully made and unmade then comfortable bed with a fluffy feather down and multiple pillows, and the lights are off, 
And it's quiet at your home and quiet in your neighborhood. Why? Because a 26-year-old young man is out patrolling in his police car, watching over you. So that if something happens in our community, they will come and in a heartbeat, they will put their lives on the line right in front of you. Why wouldn't you pray for those guys every night? Aren't you thankful for a country that has been characterized by stability for decades? Do you take that for granted? Do you think that the president and his men and all the way down to the local law enforcement don't have a lot to do with that? We can't take that for granted. And Paul says, pray for those that have rule over you. Pray for those that are above you. Pray for those who are making decisions around you so that you can live a quiet and peaceful life and so that you can go to church on Sunday morning and you can relax and drink a cup of coffee and open your Bible and have a great old time together and then go watch a football game. And that's life. And you take it for granted. And every minute of every hour of every day and every night when we put our head on our pillow, there are many people around the world who are being traumatized, who are living under the threat of evil regimes, we are, who, who are not able to relax, who cannot decently provide for their families. Because why? Because they have corrupt president and they have a corrupt legislator and they've ruined their lives or they've allowed enemies to come in and they have not held up their end of the deal and their right to protect their people and they've corrupted the system. And we need to be praying for this practical purpose that those who are above us, that they would make decisions that protect us so that we can enjoy a quiet life in which we can flourish in godliness. That's a good prayer, isn't it? Of all people, God's people ought to be praying for them. Now, I want to take a minute and put a parenthesis in here. And this is not drawn from the exegesis of the passage, but this is some thoughts that I had in my own preparation that I felt from a pastoral end would be encouraging to think about. And so I want to give you three reasons we need to pray specifically for our leaders. Apostle Paul just gave us some reasons. But I was thinking, why did Paul particularly point out these leaders? Why the king? Why the president? Why did he point them out? And by the way, this is a good time for me to also add that you need to know that the Apostle Paul did not live in a day and an age when there was godly leadership over him. In fact, it was just the opposite. It was horribly corrupt leadership. And the Nero over him and others in that kind of a system when Paul lived in that framework of our New Testament... Those men lived in horrible times. I was thinking about, uh, about maybe 30 years before this when a local governor had a party in his mansion and he wanted to impress the women folk there and his, his uh, illegitimate wife's daughter had a birthday or something. I can't remember the story and I didn't take time to review it. They had a big party. He wanted her to dance and so forth. Said he would give her a big prize, a big award because she danced so nicely in front of all his leering old buddies there that were at the party, and she said, he said, what do you want? She whispers to her mother, and her mother says, get John the Baptist's head on a platter. How's that for your governor? How'd you like that if it made front page paper? You think you got corrupt leadership? You think you got people that make decisions that are beyond stupid in your world? You think you got people you have no idea what in the world got them into office and what's keeping them in office? And what are they thinking about? We haven't opened our paper and said, Earl Ray Tomlin had a party at the mansion. Had a big dancing party. Striptease, as a matter of fact. And as a reward, 
He went and whacked off the local pastor's head and put it on a platter and gave it to her for a gift. And that's the kind of leaders we're talking about here. We're talking about the kind of leaders that if you didn't, it was even, there was even emperor worship. And we have a lot of countries in our world today that still do that, where you have to worship the emperor. Recently, when North Korea, they, they said all kinds of things, how the sky lit up at his funeral, all kinds of things. He was a god going to heaven. There's abuse of power all around our world. But Paul did not have good leadership locally. And I want you to notice that as useful as it is to be involved in the system, and I'm not against that, that we should decently and in order be involved in our, in our system of politics and, and be a good citizen. There's nothing wrong with a Christian carrying out a civil role. But Paul did not call them to start another action committee. Paul did not call the church to be on the cutting edge of calling for impeachment. Paul said, pray for the king so that we will live a quiet life in all godliness when he makes good decisions. It's interesting, isn't it? And so three quick reasons that I wanted to rattle off that are specifically thoughts on why leaders, and this is all leaders, not just the president, but pastors, professors, project leaders, teachers, policemen, why all leaders need prayer. First of all, is because of the weight of responsibility. The weight of their responsibility. I mean, can you imagine being the president of the United States and having to get out of bed on Monday morning and make decisions? I know we all know what we would do, and we all know we could do it better. But just think about all of the people in your life that are messing with you. Just think of everybody who wants a piece of you. Just think of everyone who's trying to turn your thought. Everybody who's trying to tell you what you should do. Just think about little dictators around the world who are developing nuclear power, and you've got to worry about that. And what are we going to do with that? And you've got major European countries going down in default for their monetary systems. And you're sitting on a time bomb in your own country. What are you going to do? You talk about responsibility. That's a weight of responsibility. Even our local law enforcement, these young men out there, I remember one night I turned my floodlights on because there was a ruckus outside and they were looking for somebody. The local sheriff's guys were. It was late at night and I turned all my floodlights on to help them a little bit. And I was going to offer a little bit more assistance, but I decided not to. But, um, <laughs> and so these young men, and I thought, isn't that something? You know, some 25-year-old guy with a flashlight and a gun, and it's pitch dark, and they're walking up, the, up on Daniel Road, up on the brush, and they're in the brush on our side of the road, and they're looking for somebody who's hiding on them. And I thought, man, I'm glad that's not me out there. I mean, I'm bad, but I'm not bulletproof, all right? It's like, I really appreciate those guys. What a responsibility to carry a gun. What a responsibility to put handcuffs on other people. Think of the weight of responsibility that you have our local politicians, to administrate a decent community and the pressure to succumb to the power people in the community and the, the pressure to give way to, to illegitimate pulses in leadership, that is, to be corrupted and to do things for the wrong motives and to do things for a payoff. What a responsibility. We need to pray for our people. By the way, who's the mayor of Charlestown? You pray for them by name? Who's the mayor of Ranson? Have you prayed for them by name? Who's the chief of police in Charlestown? Have you prayed for him by name? 
I used it as an illustration and didn't look them up on purpose to prove that we don't know. Half of the electronic devices in the audience went crazy right there in the first service. So on the way out, I got handed these names. <laughs> Charlestown Mayor, Peggy Smith. Chief of Police, Barry Sobolski. That's a good name, huh, Jimmy? Ransom Mayor, David Hamill. Chief of Police, William Roper. I would think that by next Sunday that at least half the people at Fellowship Bible Church ought to have a whole bunch of names added to their list, don't you? As we heed Paul's call to pray for those who have authority over us, not the least reason being the weight of responsibility. Secondly, the level of accountability. The level of accountability. We'll not take time to turn there, but do you know that God's Word clearly says... And we will look this up later when we're talking about elders and deacons in the local church. But an example, an example is Hebrews 13, 17. He says, make it a joy to serve under the people who have the rule over you because they rule as people who are accountable. Who are they accountable to? Romans 13 says that God has placed local governments and national governments in place and it repeatedly says in Romans 13... You can look it up yourself. Repeatedly, he says, they are my servants. So Barack Obama might not know it. Earl Ray Tomlin might not know it. I don't know. But they are specifically appointed by God, and they are his servants, and they are accountable to God. And Pastor Van, as the pastor of this church, will stand accountable to God someday for my role of leadership. So I take it that there is a day coming when these people stand before the Lord. And have you ever thought about the fact that death is the great equalizer? God is not impressed when you stand before him one day and say, well, you don't understand. I serve two terms, two terms as the governor of West Virginia. I guarantee Jesus will not go, wow. <laughs> I guarantee he will not say, you the man. I don't care if you're the rich man or if you're Lazarus. When you're dead, you're dead and it's equal. You brought nothing into this world and you take nothing out of this world. And you will stand naked before God. And you will stand totally transparent before God. And every motive of the heart and every reason you did everything is laid out there right before him. And you stand accountable. And people who hold power have a higher level of accountability to God than people who don't hold power. That is a scary thought. And we should be praying for people with power because they stand with a scary accountability. Not only that, I think a third reason and a final reason that we should, and Paul wants us specifically to pray for those above us, is the prospect of a Christless eternity. The prospect of a Christless eternity. Okay, so there is a tremendous responsibility to be a leader. We need to pray for that. They stand with a scary accountability before God. We need to pray for that. But what good is it if you gain the whole world and serve two terms in the White House and lose your soul to hell? It's nothing. It's dust. It's dust. When's the last time and I don't know the condition of his soul completely. No one knows the heart. But I'll tell you something. It's hard to find people inside the beltway that I see bearing the fruit of righteousness as Christ-honoring, Bible-obeying people. 
When's the last time you prayed for Barack Obama and his wife and his two precious girls that they would come to know Jesus? That they would understand that they're sinners and they're going to stand accountable before their creator God? When's the last time you prayed for Joe Biden and his wife? That Joe Biden would maybe hold one of his grandkids in his lap or something and think about the fact that he's an old man and he better get ready to meet his creator. You see, power corrupts and makes people think they're going to live forever. They think they're, they think they're you know, just uh, in control. And they don't know that their heart is in the hand of the Lord. And that, the heart takes the, that God takes the heart of the king and turns it like a water course, Proverbs says. They are servants of God and they don't even know it. We need to pray for their salvation. God always has his people in government and God has believers everywhere and who knows how they could connect. But when is the last time God's people here at Fellowship were on their knees, on their face, intercessory, inter, making intercession for the salvation of the souls of our president, our vice president, our legislators, our governor, our chief of police? What a great thing to find out that somewhere along the line, in a way that only God can do, bring things together and they come under great conviction that they need Christ. Now you're talking about hope and change, buddy. When you meet Christ, you got hope and change. And we need to pray to that end. So there's a practical motivation, the Apostle Paul says, a practical motivation that you can live a peaceful, quiet life. Pastor Van added three thoughts of his own, just thinking about this thing of why we should pray for leaders, the weight of responsibility, the level of accountability, and the prospect of a Christless eternity. They need to know Christ, that they're born again. But I want you to see that there's a spiritual motivation to pray. Not only a practical motivation, but back to 1 Timothy 2, there is a spiritual motivation. Look what it is. Verse 2 again, for kings and all those in authority that practically we may be live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Verse 3, and this is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved. That word for men means people, that God wants all people to be saved. And so he wants us to be praying for our leaders so that the gospel can go forward in greater ways so that all people can be saved. And when we pray this way, there is a spiritual motivation, and it is that it pleases God. Did you see that? He says, when you pray like this, it's good and it pleases God. Now, I kind of like thinking like that. That at this minute, I'm like in the corner of my basement, on my knees, praying for the salvation of leaders. And as it were, Jesus reaches over and gives God the elbow. This doesn't happen, I'm sure. And Jesus says, did you see that? Now, that's something he never says to God. Did you see that? But God says, oh, what's that? said, he's praying for the salvation of his leaders. And God gets a big smile on his face and says, that's really good. That pleases me. You ever think about that? That you can do something that brings pleasure to your heavenly father. That is a spiritual motivation. The Greek word even bears that out. It's the idea translated, please God. In the New American Standard, it's is acceptable to God. It comes from a Greek phrase that means to receive it gladly. Receive gladly. And so God receives those prayers gladly. He gets a smile on his face. Good job. You did good. That's my spiritual motivation. But there's also a theological motivation. Number three, notice in the passage that we are to pray for our president and those in authority practically so that we live peacefully. 
spiritually, because it's good, it pleases God. Now verse 4, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. So not only do we have a practical motivation and a spiritual motivation, but we have a doctrinal or theological motivation. Did you see what it is? That in the framework of God's mind, His agenda is that He wants all people to be saved. I don't know what your soteriological position is, and you can just take election and predestination and put that aside right now, because the Bible is clear that He came to die for all men, and He wants all men to be saved. Because it says it right there in my Bible. And that includes the president. And not only does he want everyone everywhere to hear the gospel, everyone everywhere, there is only one way. Did you hear what he said? He said, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now let's make something very clear here this morning. Because there is a commonly held religious belief around the world and in the United States, that it helps you for a spiritual reality to live it out, to physically see it by going to a man and sitting down and confessing your sins to a man and then he decides how serious you are and how repentant you are and then he will tell you whether you're forgiven or not and he will tell you what you have to do to feel forgiven after you leave there. And I'm telling you that's not biblical and that is deceptive and it is a completely unnecessary step because the Bible says right here, as clear as can be, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That is, you have access to God through Jesus and through Jesus Christ alone. And it is an act of faith and it is not by works. And he is real and he hears your prayer. Acts 4.12 says, For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. And that name is Jesus Christ. Do you know that? John chapter 3, verse 36 says that he that hath the Son has life, and he that rejects the Son is condemned already. Listen, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus being the one who came to span the gap between a holy God and sinful people. In fact, let's look at the theology just a little bit deeper in this verse. Look at verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom for all men. That's a pretty neat way of thinking about Jesus and thinking about your salvation. Now, go to the movies with me, would you? Okay? Guy's in the bank. He's got a gun. He's, he's a terrorist or something. And he wants an airplane and a million dollars. And he's got all these hostages... And the SWAT team has come and surrounded him. They got their board. Everybody get out of here. Surround them. We're going to send the dogs in. We're going to get you. So he picks up the phone. You don't understand. I will kill all these people. I need an airplane and I need a million dollars and I need peanut M&Ms or else. They're out of here. You know, I'm going to kill them. So what happens? They negotiate for the hostages, right? And he has a ransom that needs to be paid or he's going to kill people. Listen, the spiritual reality is that Satan is the terrorist and, and he's got us in the, the ropes and the bondage of sin and we're all going to die. We're all condemned. And Jesus comes to town, but he doesn't really negotiate with Satan. 
Because it's God's standard that doesn't allow us into heaven. He can't accept sin, but Satan and sin have us bound. And he uses this illustration. It's as though Jesus comes and pays the debt that is owed. He pays the money that is demanded. He makes the ransom payment, but implicit in the word, and when you study the word and study the meaning of the concept, not only that, but he switches places with the hostage. And he lets them go free, and he puts himself in the position where they were. He becomes a ransom for that which was demanded. That's a pretty great picture, isn't it? Our sinfulness has us trapped. There's no way to get out. There's demands on our soul that we cannot meet. We are powerless to meet it. And Jesus comes and pays the price, and he puts, us in, he puts himself in our position and lets us go free. What are we talking about here? We're talking about his shed blood at the, Christ, at the cross, aren't we? And Christ came to be the mediator, to be the connector, to be the one who connects us with God. Not only that, he did it in the form of being a ransom. He paid the price for our sin that we could never pay. And he took upon himself that which was not his, our sinfulness, and he satisfied the demands of a holy God so that we could be saved. That if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be saved. That means I confess my sin. I put it away. I repent of it. And I follow after Christ. I take his forgiven work, his his completed work at the cross. This is the substitutionary role of Christ. This word ransom. He substituted himself in. The substitutionary death. Where I would have been killed by the terrorists, Jesus came and got killed for me. He let me go. I was freed. The price has been paid. This is all in the context of praying for our president, praying for our leaders. We do it so there's a practical reason, so that we can enjoy gatherings like this, so that we can sit at home and drink Mountain Dew and watch the Ravens win. You know, just, just so you have freedom. We do it so that we can grow in godliness. But we also do it because there's a spiritual reason. When we pray for our president's salvation, God is pleased. It pleases God. I want to live in such a way that I please God. So Paul says. But there's a theological reason. We pray so that the scales would fall off the eyes of our president and our vice president, our governor, our secretary of state, our chief of police, our sheriff, our college professors, our college presidents, people with authority over us, our coaches, our teachers. And that they would understand that a ransom has been paid for their soul and they can be set free from their sin by putting their faith and trust in Christ alone. It's a good reason to pray, wouldn't you say? The fourth reason is Paul says it's personal. It's a personal reason. Paul says, and after all, I was appointed to be a missionary to the Gentiles. You can look at it in the end of verse 7. At just the right time, I was appointed to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And so when you pray for these Gentiles to get saved and they get saved, that helps me do my job. And we're all happy, Paul says. It's a good reason to pray, isn't it? So, in conclusion, number one, I think it's time for a whole bunch of Christians to stop grumbling about their politics and start praying. We're really good at griping. And I, of all people, understand how frustrating it can be to have rulership over us where you can't even make up the ignorant decisions that are going on. And when you see corruption, when you see ill motives for why people are where they are, but God's people 
ought to be quiet and get on their knees and pray for their salvation and wait upon God. Secondly, I think that it's high time for us to be very intentional about our prayer lists. I already referenced this point, but let me repeat it. By next week, your folded paper in the back of your Bible that you're praying through, you ought to have Barack Obama's name and his wife's name and his children's name and Joe Biden and down the line, Earl Ray Tomlin, Newt Gingrich, Mitt Romney. Get their names on your prayer list. Get your names on their prayer list. I think it's a good year, 2012, for us to talk less and pray more. By name, with intention, for these needy, needy people who stand with a horrific, scary accountability hanging over their head, and they don't even know it. And then I think more locally, as you reach out to your lost friends, are you praying for them daily, a couple times a day? Just think what happens when Wally Dow's friends open up their letter and they read the word of God, but for 32 years, Wally Dow has been praying by name for these friends. You see, somewhere along the line, you've got to, and I say this carefully, you've got to quit praying and you've got to go preach. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But when you have prayed, and then you can walk across the street one day when you've prayed for months, maybe even years, and you've prayed faithfully, and you've prayed on your knees, and maybe you've even fasted and begged God to save the soul of your neighbor, then you better walk over there and sit down, and you better open your Bible if they'll let you, and you better share the gospel with them. And that's when the lights turn on. Why? Because of the prayer that's gone on. The prayer that's been effective. Evangelistic praying. Enough of grumbling, time to pray. In faith, believing that God answers prayer and that it's his job to answer the prayer. It's just my job to pray the prayer. Let's bow in prayer. So, Father, forgive us for our prayerlessness for those in power. Please help us write our attitudes Forgive us for our grumbling, complaining spirit. Father, help us to be men and women who are burdened for the souls of these pitiful leaders, so many of whom are steeped in the system, so deeply in the system, they have no idea how mucked up it is. Would you save them, Lord? What a wonderful thing someday to run into them on the streets of gold. And know that you've answered prayer. You've been calling them to yourself. Father, thank you for the ransom that Jesus paid. Taking our place. Substituting in. Paying the penalty and then putting himself in our lost condition. Taking the weight of sin upon himself. Satisfying the demands of your holiness. Setting aside your wrath. And so, Father, accomplish your purposes in us. Put a burden on us that we cannot shake. Help us to become very persevering in prayer, evangelistic praying. And may we see much fruit in the months and years ahead, should you tarry. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.